You're listening to Ready to Real Estate, a TREB podcast. Hear stories, uncover insights, and tune into interviews on key issues that impact realtors and all of us. Join us as we discover how people, properties, and communities all come together to build the future of real estate. Now here's our host, Jason Mercer. Hi, everyone. It's Jason Mercer, TREB's Chief Market Analyst. Today's episode is critical for listeners who are looking to purchase a home or certainly help their clients purchase a home if you're a realtor. So stick around to see uh, the interesting topic today, which is uh, the mortgage market uh, in Canada. And and today we're going to be talking mortgages with Paul Taylor, the president and CEO of Mortgage Professionals Canada. And he'll speak about how COVID-19 impacted mortgages, but also how shifts in mortgage policies um, have affected the, the marketplace for prospective home buyers uh, as we move beyond this pandemic. So, Paul, thank you very much for joining us today on, on the Ready to Real Estate podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jason. Nice to see you again. Thanks very much. And, and obviously, you know, we, we appreciate you taking part uh, in our recent market year review and, uh, and, and outlook event. Uh, and we just wanted to follow up, I think, on, on some of those topics that, um, you know, that both you spoke to and, and certainly I touched upon in, in, in sort of laying out what our outlook is for the housing market um, over the next year as you move through 2021 and, and certainly uh, into 2022 as well. And maybe I thought I, we, we'd start things with, with sort of a look backwards because obviously COVID-19 um, had, a, had a huge impact on, on the trajectory of the overall economy and, and, and that fed through into you know, what, what consumers, what households were looking to do in the GTA with regard to, to housing. And, and, and fortunately, you know, the dip that we saw in demand for, for housing was, was relatively short-lived because a lot of people were able to move from the, you know, the bricks and mortar office to the home office fairly easily. And it's a lot of those households that were also pointed at, at home ownership uh, to begin with. But maybe, you know, thinking about the mortgage market in particular, I think something that, that took the headlines by storm, if we think back to, to last spring and, and as we move through the summer, was this concept of mortgage deferrals and, and what some felt was a, an impending mortgage deferral uh, cliff. So maybe take us first through what that concept of, of the mortgage deferral cliff was and, and sort of where you stand. My sense is you and I are in sync on where we stand on the issue, but uh, um, I'd like to hear from the expert on it. Sure. So, so thanks, Jason. Um, I think that the notion of the deferral cliff really was created by the number of folks that availed themselves of the deferral program when it was available. But I think hindsight is, is much clearer than it was in the time. Um, when the market really fell in April, there was a, a pretty dramatic upswing in unemployment. Um, but that also self-corrected quite quickly. And as we know, sort of looking back, the folks that were most disproportionately impacted by the uh, shutdowns of hospitality and um, travel tourism type of businesses were people that were generally at the lower end of the income spectrum. And because of that, they're not traditionally mortgage holders. Um, That said though, there was so much uncertainty in March and April of last year that when the banks got together with OSFI, who is the regulator, to talk about how could we structure some sort of support to ensure that we can provide a little bit of cash flow relief really to folks that might find themselves uh, in a temporary unemployed position? The, the structure of that program was put together initially with the intention that we would try to support the people that had been directly economically impacted. Um, I think due to just the heightened tension in the marketplace at the time, 
people's personal fears, and then a little bit probably of misreporting by media that you know suggested people could get a mortgage holiday for six months. The number of folks that were contacting banks to avail themselves of those was astronomical. Um, and I think we know now the vast majority of people that took part in those mortgage deferrals initially did so really from a self-defense perspective rather than a I'm in immediate danger perspective. And we saw a dramatic number of uh, probably one in, one in eight, I think, was about 12, 13% of all mortgages at one point were actually in those deferral programs. But I think as people's confidence started to grow that this whole working from home thing is not actually the end of the world and that my income is secure and that my employment is secure, quite a lot of folks voluntarily started to withdraw from the deferral program and started voluntarily making payments again. And so back in May and June, there was real concern that, okay, we're two months into what was supposed to be a six-month window of deferrals. We may find that you know, 800,000 people suddenly find themselves unable to make those mortgage payments again when they come due. And so there was real uh, nervousness about what would happen to the housing market if suddenly you know, every 10th person had to sell their home. Um, we've seen the dramatic reduction in number of participants in those programs as confidence has increased. And fortunately, I think for all of us, the deferral cliff has almost petered away to next to nobody left actually in those assistive type of deferral programs now. I think less than 1% of most of the larger lenders portfolios now are still in, a, in that sort of arrears deferral program. Um, so the likelihood of there being significant economic um, damage or house price erosion or any of the other things that have been forecast right now is really very small. Yeah, I think it's interesting, and, and I'll touch upon a little bit too. I mean, you know, the, the results we've seen from our consumer polling that, that Ipsos undertakes for us at least once a year, sometimes twice a year, depending on, you know, what's going on in the marketplace, um, you know, it's found that, you know, even first-time buyers and certainly, you know, people who are in the market, existing sort of move-up buyers or move-down buyers in the market have a substantial amount of equity in the market, in, in their home, and, and their intention on average is to put down a substantial down payment um, on said home when they're looking to say move around in the marketplace or even move into the market for uh, the, 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 the first time. And so I, I think that feeds a lot into it too, that you know, even in times of, of severe economic strife, whether you're talking about you know, what we've just been through over the last year or thinking back to 2008, 2009, the, 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 uh, um, you know, the delinquency rate or, or percentage of mortgages in arrears has remained remarkably low in Canada. And I think to a certain degree, that's because of you know, the, the, the prudent household balance sheet management that you see by and large um, in Canada and the fact that people are loath to you know, default on something that they have so much skin in the game on. Yeah, I would, I would agree wholeheartedly with that. Uh, we run consumer surveys as well. And so we also see the same thing. Most first time buyers really do try to get to that 20% down payment and almost avoid the premium for mortgage insurance right. entirely. Uh, and so where they can, they do. It's, mortgage qualification in Canada is also incredibly stringent. I pe think people forget this. There's a lot of rhetoric and I think there's a, a lot of fear created actually because media will often report on things like um, MNP issues, very startling reports that 50% of Canadians are one paycheck away from bankruptcy. 
Uh, I'm not sure why they do that. The data certainly doesn't support that. The size of personal savings for an awful lot of Canadians is such that there's an awful lot of security in the in the system there. Um, but we have debt service ratios that limit the portion of your gross income you're actually allowed to put towards mortgage payment and property taxes and heating. So you really just look after your um, full housing gamut. We also have a stress test, which fictitiously assumes that the, the interest rate you're paying right now actually is going to be 310, 320 basis points higher than the contract you're actually going to be issued. So not only are you restricted on the amount you can use to finance the mortgage, it's further reduced by some uh, mathematical tests. And there is an awful lot of stringency around ensuring that the income that an applicant is bringing forward is secure and solid and they have a, a good history of employment and can service those loans. So there's an awful lot of risk management just in qualifi qualification for borrowers in addition to the equity that people would bring with the down payment. I think our, our mortgage market is probably one of the most secure in the world, frankly, for a number of different factors. I, I tend to agree, and, and it's a nice segue, actually. The next question I had was, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to talk a little bit about, you know, mortgage lending policy in Canada, because I, I've been with Treb a little bit more than a decade, and, and, and you know, my start with Treb, you know, coincided with, you know, the Great Recession uh, that was, you know, very much a, a housing-based recession, at least in, in the United States, and, and it prompted, you know, a, a successive uh, a number of rounds of, uh, of changes to, to mortgage lending policy on the part of the federal government. And obviously that fed through uh, CMHC. Um, and, and then obviously right up to, you know, the, the recent time where, you know, up until the second half of 2019, um, you know, we were certainly seeing the impact of the OSFI two percentage point stress test. And so I guess, I guess my question to you is, is, is twofold. Number one, um, you know, maybe sort of explain, you know, sort of the path we've been on over the last few years in terms of mortgage lending policy, because I think people forget, you know, how much we've sort of tinkered with the, uh, you know, lending protocols and, and what have you over, over time and, and uh, you know, arguably become even more conservative over the last few years in terms of, of a lending policy. But then also, you know, thinking about, you know, we're in a tight market right now, we're seeing strong price growth and what have you. Um, if there's anything that, you know, we should be looking out for on the horizon as well from a policy perspective. Um, there's quite a few changes for sure. I, so the, the one that has had the most impact in recent times anyway, is certainly the introduction of those stress tests. Um, initially the insured stress test, so that for the folks that had less than 20% down payment, they, they were the first ones to require that fictitious test. And then the, the uninsured Effectively, the entire market became subject to it. Um, end of 2018, I believe, beginning of 2019. Um, the only thing that had the same sort of comparable impact to mortgage market activity was the reduction of 30-year RAMs to 25-year RAMs. Um, and that saw an awful lot of disqualification of first-time buyers. And honestly, that I think from our association's point of view, the real concern we have really about a lot of the policy changes is they always seem to be credit constraining, but, but across the board. Um, and unfortunately, it's the folks at the bottom end of the economic ladder that generally end up feeling the brunt of that. So it's the aspiring would-be middle-class, first-time home buyers, people that generally needed more support to get the foot on the first rung of that ladder. 
that are, are sort of pushed out. And I understand that the policymakers' intent is to ensure that we're not artificially creating competition in the marketplace and it's sort of bidding wars, I think, from many people's perspective that is creating these uh, year-over-year escalations that in some regions pre-COVID were really quite eye-watering. Um, and government is very concerned about speculative notions of purchase rather than people that are actually creating investment portfolios or owner-occupiers. And the owner-occupiers are really the folks that we think should probably get the greatest policy focus. So it's really difficult to start to pull apart policy without having unintended consequences in, in various sections. But I, on a very personal level, I would really like to see there be an approach that tried to favor owner occupation versus investor purchases, especially in that bracket of uh, first time home buying price range, if you will. Um, it's, it's complicated to do. I understand that, but I, I think rather than us just continuing to constrain credit and, and pushing the people at the bottom out, that actually, we've seen the results of it. You, you report on this all the time, actually, Jason. The people that are already well capitalized, who have got an equity base in an existing property, are the ones that have then the larger down payment and can scale up the bidding because of our low interest rates. It's not the first time buyers. And we almost are perpetuating this problem of exacerbating a wealth gap between the folks that were lucky enough to already be in and so can compete at the bidding level versus those that are renters at the moment who are also seeing escalating rents, which is precluding their ability to save a down payment and therefore get into the market themselves. It's a, it's, it's tough. Right. And, and I, one of the interesting things too, that I, I've seen is kind of unfold uh, at least from my perspective over the last couple of years is this sort of break, if you will, between, you know, CMHC as a crown corporation that's involved in, uh, um, uh, underwriting mortgages and providing mortgage insurance versus some of the private sector competitors in terms of, you know, how they're working with, with, uh, with, with clients differently. And I don't know, you know, what are your thoughts in terms of how that's sort of affected the market? Has that essentially led to a more competitive landscape because everyone's not necessarily doing the same thing and, and going to the beat of the same drummer or, uh, or not? What's your perspective? Um, the, so the, Changes in June were probably the first time that I, in my experience anyway, have not seen all three of the insurers move in lockstep, uh, both for pricing and for underwriting guidelines. Uh, I actually am a, I'm a fairly strong proponent of the idea that they should have differing appetites for policy issuance. I think it actually does create a much healthier marketplace. Um, I think we're a long way away from seeing premium differentiation, although ultimately that's what I would like to get to, frankly. Um, and then the, the respective risk models would be able to explain why some of them have got strengths or specialties in one particular type or area of the market versus uh, others. But uh, given CMHC is, um, it seems to have morphed in the last few years, actually from being strictly a crown corporation that is administering a mortgage insurance program on behalf of the government to being much more of a policy and housing think tank with m quite a large uh, social perspective regarding uh, disenfranchised. And, you know, they have a, a, a goal now to ensure that every Canadian has by 2030 will have a home 
that is affordable and meets their needs. Uh, it's a tremendously laudable goal. But if you think about it for a moment, it is a far more socialistic kind of a mandate for a, a policy think tank than it is for what you would consider to have been a, a traditional administrative insurance uh, body. So I, a lot of what they have done from an underwriting perspective, I think is reflective of a very conservative view of the marketplace. Uh, its current leadership, uh, Evan Siddle, worked at the Bank of Canada actually under Mark Carney during the financial crisis. So I think he's quite emotionally scarred, honestly, by that. And he definitely is hyper attuned to the potential for there to be reductions in housing values and what that can do economically to families if they find themselves. If you're last in, then you, you have a much greater risk of being underwater when the sure. market goes down. Um, but it's, it's because we have more than one mortgage insurer and we have the ability to have leaders that have also got different perspectives and different risk appetites that ultimately will end up making our marketplace stronger and more vibrant. So we have seen some differentiation. We've seen a reduction actually in the portfolio at CMHC. They have actually quite deliberately been reducing their footprint though for the last number of years. So I, I don't think that that's a concern. And one of the things that's forgotten often is the private mortgage insurers are still backstopped by the government to 90%. Right. They also pay the government a significant premium for that. So it, it's not a public service. And this is very much a financial transaction. And the, the banking regulator, OSFI, also provides um, fiscal and solvency oversight requirements to the mortgage insurers as well. So everybody has significant minimum capital requirements. The stress test actually that CMHC undertook a couple of weeks ago, probably a little misreported, but they certainly were there to reassure investors. We can survive all but the absolute worst case scenarios that we can even devise that would describe housing market collapses. If you're a bondholder of ours, rest assured, we can make you whole. We are very well capitalized. And that's, uh, that's a real testament, again, to the strength of the, the marketplace we have in Canada. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and I think, you know, this probably isn't the last time we'll talk about, you know, changes to, to, to mortgage policy and, and, and what that means for the marketplace. But I think certainly, you know, thinking about, you know, what we should expect to see over the next year or so in terms of, of mortgage products, probably a certain degree of, of status quo and probably a real question when you think about, um, you know, buyers and sellers in the marketplace is, is uh, you know, where do you see mortgage rates headed? I mean, certainly in my outlook, my baseline scenario was, you know, on, on shorter term rates that are more pegged to Bank of Canada decisions. You know, we don't see a lot of movement um, on, on that front, obviously, as we're, you know, still looking to sort of the recovery stage of things really through 2022, probably from, from that standpoint. But on the more medium term, like, you know, the barometer five-year rate, um, you know, the cost of funds there for lenders, you know, probably starts to inch up this year and even more so in 2022 as people anticipate, you know, Bank of Canada rate hikes further down the, the road and start to average that in. So, uh, I mean, from the perspective of your organization, where do you think, see things going, both in terms of, I guess, you know, the, the cost of raising capital to lend out to, to uh, uh, home purchasers, but also in terms of, you know, where do you think see things going in terms of, you know, discounting and what have you that different lenders may, uh, uh, may enter into with, you know, on a borrower by borrower basis? Uh, so that's a really good question. It's also 
uh, it's incredibly difficult to forecast anything beyond <laughs> sure. the next six months. Um, you've alluded to it already, though. The Bank of Canada governor has given um, very, people use this word all the time now, but there's never been such clear forward guidance given by a Bank of Canada governor ever, I don't believe. And uh, he has assured everybody that they're not going to consider moving the overnight rate until all of the economic slack of unemployment and the increased immigration and such are taken up, which is likely going to be 2023. Um, now, that's only one component, though, as you know, to money markets. The Bank of Canada has also been purchasing a whole bunch of government and corporate debt to the tune of about $4 billion a week, I think, for the last little while. And that keeps real interest rates low. Because if the Bank of Canada is prepared to purchase the bonds of private corporations, then they're also safeguarding the return for those investors. Um, when the quantitative easing mechanisms they're using to do that starts to be wound down, I think that's when you'll actually start to see real interest rates inch up. Um, I don't think it's going to be dramatic. Interest rates were quite low even before COVID. Um, we were somewhere around, well, we were 1.75% overnight rate. Under the previous Bank of Canada governor, um, Polas used to say somewhere between a two and a half and three percent is what we would consider neutral. I think they've adjusted that down. I think somewhere between two and two and a half is probably neutral today. So hard to say long term. I'm going to. I've also seen um, a lot of the banking CEOs and economists of late have suggested that 2023 is too far. We're actually going to, once the vaccines are administered and if you have an optimistic outlook, let's say it's September before we're at the 80% magic herd immunity kind of a number. Once the travel, tourism, hospitality business is open, we'll get a traumatic sure. uptake of activity again. And that will create inflationary pressure if we don't do something with interest rates in a hurry. So um, I'm less convinced actually that we're going to, to see that in the immediate um, I'm much more keeping an eye on what's going to happen with the quantitative easing program because that'll be the first of the hints. I don't even know if we're going to hit the uh, immigration targets that we've got set. It, it's, there's going to be an awful lot of psychology at play there. In the short run, you're not going to see a lot of change, though. Right? And I, I think it'll be a, a relatively controlled increase between sort of mid to late 2022, even discussing policy um, implications for increases. And it'll be a while before you get back to kind of a four and a half percent contract rate issued. I also would like to see, there was an announcement made in February of last year that they were actually going to uncouple the Bank of Canada's posted five-year rate from the stress test. Right. You, you actually mentioned a minute or two ago that when it was implemented, the intent was that it would be about 2%. But the Bank of Canada rate really has not served to move in lockstep with what real interest right. rates have been, which is why we've seen this widening now. Bank of Canada rate is actually today 479, which is higher than it was when the test was implemented. It was 469 at the time, but real interest rates are a full percentage point plus lower than they were right. then. Um, it's not a good public policy mechanism for that sort of a thing. If they would implement what was announced, I understand why they paused it. There's an awful lot of uncertainty in the marketplace today, but it makes much more sense to me to just make the policy a floating 2% rather than using that benchmark rate as part of that mechanism. 
Yeah, I agree. And I mean, if you think about, you know, moving through the economic cycle, I mean, you know, 200 basis points is, is you know, I mean, we've become a lot more sensitive to 200 basis points today, like the economy as a whole compared to, you know, five and 10 years ago. And, and I think it's important to take that into account. I think you're right. I mean, we were headed down that road. And then obviously, we, we sort of moved into a, a period of uncertainty around COVID-19. And, and uh, you know, that, that got put on hold. So it'll be interesting to see where that balance is between, you know, mortgage policy and, and what we see unfold in the, in the, in the housing market um, over the next year. My guess is just because, you know, if you think about, you know, how tight the market is right now, and, and you know, that probably it probably gets tighter as, as you say, you start to see more first time buyers come into the market as some of those other segments of the economy start to pick up as well. Um, that, you know, they may take a bit of a wait and see attitude before revisiting that, uh, you know, that concept that was, you know, getting close to being put into place, you know, prior to, uh, to, to COVID-19. But look at Paul, I really want to thank you for, for taking part into, in today's podcast. And I think it's, uh, you know, really important information because we talk a lot about, um, you know, the, the conditions in the market. But I think, you know, one of the questions that, you know, our members get the most is, is, on, the, is on the borrowing side as well. I think certainly, you know, most of our, our members, you know, have great networks with, with a lot of your members as well in terms of, uh, you know, helping their clients work their way through the different aspects of a, of a home purchase. But I think it's also important for them to be armed with this important information, both on the, the policy side and the, and the mortgage market side. So I really can't thank you enough for taking part in today's episode. Yeah, I always appreciate the conversation, Jason. It's, uh, it's always fun talking to you, for sure. Well, thanks very much. And, and thanks to everyone else who tuned in today's episode. So don't forget to visit Treb.ca to discover the market year review and outlook report. And even more from, from T Paul Taylor and his group, uh, they provided um, insights in our report um, on the mortgage market. So thanks again, and we'll talk to you all soon. That's it for us. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media and visit our website, treb.ca. That's T-R-R-E-B.ca to find market insights and more. This has been another episode of Ready to Real Estate, and thank you for tuning in.